Hi folks, it's Kian here with this episode of Wide Atlantic Weird. Well, I've got something very special for you this time. I'm afraid I've had a little difficulty with my dial-up internet this week though, and Windows 95 has been playing up as well, so it's fair to say I've had a few tech problems. If this episode comes out late, that's the reason why. Well, that and I've been catching up on the latest episode of Friends and reading some tech magazines. I read that some Silicon Valley types over there in California are trying to come up with websites that connect people socially in a kind of network, as if that'll ever take off. I also read about this company that wants to sell books over the internet, as if people would trust the internet enough to put their credit card details into a website. Anyway, Wide Atlantic Weird is a show about why people believe weird things, coming to you from here in the cabin in the woods in Wild West Cork. And I have something very strange for you this time. It's a piece of audio I downloaded from LimeWire. As you've probably experienced, you never quite know what you're going to get with LimeWire. You think you have the new Slipknot album and instead it's some tribute band from Two Blondes, Arizona. So this file I got appears to be a radio show, or a podcast as they seem to call it, claiming to be from the year 2020, which by the sound of things comes off as some kind of dystopian future year. There's mention of a global pandemic, crazy political death cults, and you won't believe who the American president is. I don't know who made this up, but it's utterly unbelievable. Well, I hope you enjoy it, because it took me four days to upload it. Joining me as I listen to this strange recording is a bottle of another bloody IPA from Cottonball Brewing in Mayfield, Cork City. It's a sweet IPA with blood orange in it, of all things. Grab yourself a drink as we settle down to listen to this episode Time and again, for a sigh and other time slips. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Okay, so I'm going to get started with just a couple of very quick recommendations, or at least part recommendations, because this first program I wasn't actually able to get a hold of, though I really like the look of it, and I was excited to talk about it. It is called Dead Still. Dead Still is a new Irish-slash-Canadian online and TV show uh, with this sort of a spooky gothic turn-of-the-century vibe. It's set in Victorian Dublin in the 1880s and it appears to be a sort of a murder mystery that is taking place around the lives of photographers who specialize in that very particular kind of Victorian post-mortem photography. If you've ever seen that film um, Photographing Fairies, uh, one of the main characters in that is was involved in the same trade, and that was a version of the the Cottingley Fairies case. But yeah, the story mostly focuses on the the tradition in Victorian times of taking photographs of the family with the body just after the person has died. So very interesting, very unusual. I really like whenever we see a version of these kind of Victorian ghost stories. They're usually set in London. It's really nice to see one set in Dublin as well. Um, Ironically, if you're listening to this in the UK or America or Canada, which um, I happen to know most of you are, uh, you you can see this show before I can because it's available in various online streaming places now in those countries. But ironically, it's not available in, in Ireland yet and won't be until... 
until maybe October or November. And I'm not I'm not really techy enough to figure out how to uh, bypass those regional differences. So that's dead still. If you're out there and you're watching it already, please do get in touch. Let us know if it's any good. I was all excited to talk about it and then I found out that I couldn't actually watch it. What I have been watching and I am going to recommend is another Irish show which is called On Klondike. And it's about the the Irish um, immigrants in the Klondike Gold Rush in the 1890s in Western Canada. And it's, it was originally made by TG Cahir, which is, of course, the Irish language TV channel. And it is now being broadcast by RTE, who are the more mainstream Irish state broadcasters. It's on all of the streaming platforms if you are in Ireland. If you are elsewhere, I believe it was re-released as a sort of a film called Dominion Creek. So if you are listening from abroad, you can maybe find it there. But it's like a Wild West sort of a scenario all of it filmed incredibly up in Connemara in Galway so the the absolute gall the absolute neck of the filmmakers to you know be working with a very small budget and to go up to Connemara and pretend like they're in the wild west is just astonishing it's one of those I wish I'd thought of it type things and what they've done is they built a whole little wild west town there and comparisons to Deadwood are inevitable this is not Deadwood um, they did not have a fraction of the resources, but it's a very, very, very interesting show altogether and definitely worth a look. And uh, yeah, there's some cheesy Wild West stereotypical stuff going on here, but I just, I have to admire the sheer ambition of them. And it's partly in English and partly in Irish. So it, to me, it's a very interesting use of the Irish language in a in a different historical context, which would have made sense. A lot of the immigrants in those days who would have come from the west of Ireland would have spoken primarily in Irish. So it's really cool to see them um, used in that historical context. So that's on Klondike and Dead Still. I'll put references to both shows in the show notes and hopefully I'll get to see the uh, get to see Dead Still soon and talk about it. But that is enough intro from me. We have a guest waiting and her name is Faye Sewell from the YouTube show The Ghost Trail. Faye, how have you been? Hi, um, I'm doing very well. Thank you, Kian. How are you? Thanks for having me back, by the way. I am always delighted to have you on. We have an exciting topic to talk about this time. And it's one that I know you've been looking forward to talking about. But before we get to time slips, Faye, I need to find out what's been happening with your show, The Ghost Trail. Yeah, so we've been doing our best to continue to produce as many episodes as possible while being in lockdown. And now that we're starting to come out of it, we're still primarily focusing on researching and retelling ghost stories um, and themed episodes. But we're also kind of slowly starting to get out there a little bit. So our very latest episode, Pluckley Village, um, has some actual footage of a visit and we've got an episode that I'm quite excited about on London tourist attractions um, anything we can walk to or that Joe can drive to in, is now sort of in our remit so we're slowly expanding back up and we're also considering um, getting out there and doing some in-person site visits together soon so I'm very excited for that because I've really been missing that aspect of the show. Excellent I've been very impressed with how you got through the lockdown months with um a lot of viewer submissions and uh, people's uh, goals, you know, personal ghost stories, which is, I think, kind of an evergreen genre. People really love personal ghost stories. And I think I think that was done very well. But you must be excited now to get out on the road again and 
start having adventures. Yes, absolutely. Um, yes, people have been great for sending in fantastic stories and we've really enjoyed getting those. So I'm, I am very grateful for those. So I have a maybe ghost story that I've been, I've been sort of teasing on our Instagram recently. So myself and friend of the show, Chris Spooky Joyce, um, we we got a rare couple of dry days right at the end of the summer and we, we thought, right, this is it, I'm going to go for it. I've been trying to get people to go camping all, all summer. So finally, we took a few days. We went, we drove to a spot I know of just at the bottom of the Galtee Mountains, okay, just at the very north of County Cork, just over the border with Chipperary. And there's a spot I know where there's a, a lovely wooded area. It's like a valley uh, with a river going down the middle of it and steep slopes and uh, leading up into the, the mountains. And Ireland is is probably the least wooded country in, in, in Europe. So there are not a whole lot of places you can go where you want to feel isolated because you're surrounded by forest and trees and you can't see very far around you. We do have some isolated spots, but they tend to be bare of vegetation and you can see for miles all around you, which is dramatic and beautiful in its own way. But I, in my heart, I love, I love getting lost in a forest. It's different to getting lost in any other way. So... We packed our bags and hiked up to the top of a particular slope where there is a, not an abandoned, but an empty building. Now, this whole area back in the day had been the the grounds for a big house. And there's still, a, at the entrance at the bottom of the hill, there's still a, like a, a gatehouse, a guardhouse. And there's families going out for walks. It was a sunny Sunday. And there are other people camping in other places. But we went a little bit further than most of them go. And we tried to get away from the masses. And I took I took us up into um, a, a particular camping spot just next to this sort of empty lodge. It had been used as a like a sort of a mini hotel or ho- like a hostel, I suppose, for visiting groups. Uh, but it's been abandoned for some time. It's been looked after quite well. I believe there's a local group doing their best to try and get this open again so groups can use it, which would be lovely. But at the moment, it is a... I'm not sure how old the building is, but it looks Victorian or like 1910s or 20s. It's got uh, all these elaborate uh, chimneys and you'll see pictures of it if you check us out on our Instagram. And so there's nothing else around it. It's a house completely on its own, surrounded just by trees and forest. And there's a little hollow next to it, like a like a, a depression of the ground. And there's a whole lot of trees there and then a, a stream going next to it. So we camped there. And you know that feeling of, hey, you know, at the beginning of the night, this is fine. You know, we light the fire, we have a beer, this is great. And then as it gets darker, you start to, <laughs> you know, pe- people who wouldn't ordinarily be too scared start to, anyway, we, we were, of course, telling scary stories and ghost stories and monster stories. And sure enough, we got to that point where we'd spooked ourselves and we started like <laughs> interpreting sounds. <laughs> and the continuously running stream is like an amazing white noise because it you can hear anything inside it you think what's that is that a is that an animal is that like people screaming is that (laughs) somebody coming to get us and we heard thumps like something falling down the hill a couple of times and there's a video I'll, i'll put out there of like chris going over to check it with his torch and i'm like sitting by the fire going did you did you hear something (laughs) you know like in a found footage horror film and then I swear, what looked like a light came on in the lodge up at the top of the hill and I nearly lost oh. it. I said, Chris, what is that a light? And he said, oh, it must be something reflecting, but but there was no moon out, you know, so what could it possibly? And we're, you know, there's quite high 
um, hills. The slopes around us are quite high. There's nothing, you know, there's no there's no street lights. There's no car lights. There's nothing that could have created that. Eventually, we, we kind of got it together enough to come up out of the valley, up onto the ridge. Um, once we were out of the depression, okay, the moon was out. And it, in fact, it was going in through one of the windows and lighting up one of the walls on the inside but i was so impressed at like to have such a little thing if you're in the right mood mm. can really freak you out if we hadn't gone up and checked we would have been telling people you know for the rest of our lives what about that time there were weird lights on in the in the empty house in the middle of the woods so yeah that's our like mini camping weird story well done for going and checking it out <laughs> i know a lot of people wouldn't <laughs> so oh, so um yeah, we better start talking about time slips, Faye. This was your suggestion. Tell me what, like, what, what you know about them, what you like about them. So I find time slips just such a fascinating concept. Um, and there's so many elements of it that interest me. I, I think on some level, I'd quite like to blunder into one. Um, and myself and Joe have had this conversation about sort of the balance of interesting versus terrifying, if that actually happened. And the sort of the theory of like, well, how do you know that some missing persons cases aren't people who went into time slips and never found their way back? I mean, how do you what are the rules if you get into one? Do you automatically get out of it like the stories that we've we've been told or is it possible you could get stuck there forever? Um, but we we've got an episode planned where we're going to visit a couple of famous sites and see just see what happens. Um you know, if, if anything spooky or strange happens. But um, yeah, I just think that there's a, there's a little bit of crossover for me as well between time slips and hauntings because some hauntings that I've come across read to me like they could actually be time slips. You know, like when a person sees multiple ghosts at the same time or things like ghosts of trains or ships and so on, like things that logically shouldn't have um, a spirit or a soul, I wonder if it's actually a time slip. And it kind of, for me, it ties into stone tape theory slightly as well. Um, I was going to go there. Oh, yeah. amazing, <laughs> were you? <laughs> I, For me, I like the fact that they're like a true old-fashioned Fortean phenomena, you know, in, in, in terms of just, they're just weird. They're not part of any, I mean, when we say Fortean, we mean like the work of Charles Fort, who just collected weird stories and they don't necessarily tie into any worldview. So, you know, if you're talking about ghosts and you treat them as like spirits of the dead, you know, you're kind of dealing with a cultural background, which ultimately comes from Judeo-Christianity um, or at least some version of it. If you're talking about stone tape, you're, you're ultimately going with sort of paranormal ideas from the 1970s and 60s. But like no, uh, and as well, there's no there's no conspiracy angle. You know, a lot of the stuff I deal with just gets really dark, and it's not my favorite angle of what I do. But this stuff is just one of, like those books I read when I was a kid. Of here's a collection of weird stuff. Uh, the universe is weird. Sometimes this stuff just happens, <laughs> and it isn't part of a larger explanation. Although I was definitely convinced as a kid that like missing person stories were you know some of them okay maybe they were kidnappings but they're you know you could just disappear you could just slip into another dimension because i was reading these books where that's what happened to people <laughs> but yeah there was a, a story that joe told me and I, i'm not sure about the source on this but I'm, i can check it for her if you want um or check it from her sorry but basically it was this story whereby 
um, this woman was waving her husband off to work and he walked down the path and there were neighbors coming towards them and they all saw him just disappear into thin air and she slept on the spot for a couple of months and she claimed that she could hear his voice calling for help but that over time it got fainter and fainter and fainter and no one ever saw him again um and i just so weird <laughs> that that's a story that she- happened to somebody she knows is it? no i think she the... read it somewhere but i'm not sure where so if you want the source for that I'll, I'll double check that with her it reminds me there's an andrew lang story about a farmer in tennessee who disappears walking across a field and then his for years afterwards his family hear his voice faintly in the air and there's a there's like a circular spot of uh, like a dark spot on the ground where he disappeared so yeah, that's a classic motif. And it, it doesn't it make you think of stories of fairies and changelings and people being snatched away, uh, at, you know, and, and taken away to the fairy world or, or in, in Ireland to, you know, the, the little people wherever they live, that sort of thing. Absolutely. I love it. I love um, kind of like what you were saying, like just the random strangeness of it. And like time as a concept is super fascinating anyway. And the idea that you can just fall through a hole in time and end up somewhere random um, with no particular rules to it, I think is really interesting as well. So do you have some favorite examples that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, so I've got a couple. Um, I like all of these stories for different reasons. Um, So the first one regards the famous Carl Jung, um, who in the early 1930s visited the ancient town of Ravenna in Italy. Um, I'm going to apologize in advance if any of my pronunciations here are off, but uh, (laughs) Jung described a strange mood in the tomb of Galla Placidia. Um, So he proceeded on to the baptistry of Neon, where a mild blue light filmed the room. He was amazed by four great mosaic frescoes of incredible beauty. So that's what he, that's a sort of a direct quote. Um, And he discussed these for about 20 minutes with a friend he was with. They studied them in detail, um, so much so that he described them in his autobiography. And on the way out, he attempted to purchase photographs. Um, But then he was told the mosaics no longer existed. So he theorized himself that his unconscious mind connected with Galla Placidia, who was a prominent Roman politician. And he thinks that he saw a vision of what she would have seen in her life. But his companion also saw the same mosaics. So he ha- had his own theory about what happened there. But to me, that sounds more like a classic time slip. Um, I don't know what you think, but I mean, the idea of even if his mind was somehow connected with someone in the past, I can't see how that would also have affected this other person who had no specific interest in this figure. I mean, apparently he was quite interested in this Roman so he felt that he had this deep connection to her but obviously his friend was kind of fairly neutral on it we've mentioned young on, on the show a few times before just because he had i mean he, he's, he's well known as a, as a more mainstream psychologist but he or uh, let's say a person in the history of psychology but he also had a huge interest in the occult and had all sorts of odd beliefs about how like ghosts and, and ufos and, and stuff like time slips probably were like some kind of projection from you know what he might call the mass unconscious like when enough people when some strange new stress or anxiety builds up amongst the population at large it will then physically manifest 
in, as some kind of phenomena. So yeah, he, he's he's a very relevant figure. Yeah, very interesting. Um, the idea that you know your your unconscious mind can just link up with somebody who's currently dead, um, and you can see through their eyes. Uh, like to me, that sounds less plausible than a time slip. <laughs> but you know. <laughs> Well, yeah, Each to their own. I, I have my issues with, I have my issues with sort of Freudian and Jungian psychology. But yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't place them as being a whole lot more respectable than some of the other more out there stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, I quite liked that one, and then the other two cases that I find super interesting. So one of them, um, I read about in a book called Supernatural England, which is edited by Betty Puttick. And that is in in relation to a reported time slip in Tunbridge Wells in Kent. So that is on myself and Joe's list as a place to visit. And that time slip is much less dramatic and picturesque as, you know, suddenly seeing magical blue light and mosaics. It was literally just um, a lady went for coffee while her husband was shopping and she went to this cute little vintage coffee shop and then the week, a week later, after she'd met back up with him, obviously, she thought, oh, you know, I'll, I'll take him to the coffee shop. And they went back there and it was no longer there. And it turned out it hadn't been there for years. Or there was some other building on top of it. Um, but when, she, when they looked into it, it did used to stand there. Um, so, I mean, she just casually slipped into a different time, had a cup of coffee and came back. So it's quite a nice, gentle very mundane actually um example that i quite liked so we thought well we could we could try and fall into that one and we'll just go for coffee and it'd be quite fun um i'm not 100 percent sure of the era uh but i believe this incident took place i think it was the 70s or the 80s so not super long ago um and i don't think she slipped back that far either that was that was the other interesting aspect of that it wasn't you know, sort of hundreds of years. Um, I think it was fairly recent, like maybe 15, 20 years in the difference between her time and the time of the coffee shop. Cool. And again, you've got like, you've got the perfect little story slash urban legend where you've got the tag at the end where she goes and like there's some key detail which proves and, and allows her to identify the time. So she says, I was in this coffee shop and they tell her, oh, but that has been shut since 1959 yeah. or whatnot. And, you know, it's when, when you're, you know, when these stories transmit themselves, there has to be a little tag like that. You know, if you were scripting it for an episode of, you know, amazing stories or something, that's the payoff moment. <laughs> it's nice. It's neat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think the other reason why I quite like that one is uh you know there's all those famous ones about people going on holiday and driving places and staying in hotels that turn out to no longer exist when they go back but every time that i hear those i always think oh it's just really likely that they got lost you know because it's an area they don't know that well and it's little windy country roads but i think it would be harder to uh sort of get lost in a town go to a coffee shop go back looking for it and it would be a bit of a coincidence that you went to the wrong place and that there also used to be a coffee shop on that site. So I think that's why I like that one, because it, it just seems a little bit stronger. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it is interesting. Obviously, that has to, you know, you have to have that moment. Um, or I suppose otherwise you don't have a story. <laughs> <laughs> you just have no explanation. Um, 
I suppose you just think you were just in the wrong place and that was the end of it. Uh, and then another one that I'd quite like to check out is uh, the famous Bold Street in Liverpool. And there are so many cases associated with this one. Um, the most famous is probably that of the shoplifter who was running away from a security guard and the security guard saw him vanish in the middle of the street and then he all he reappeared at the end of the road. He got away, um, but he reported, you know, having slipped into another time and multiple people saw him vanish. So that's kind of the one that people talk about the most. But apparently there's also um, people that work on that street have reported strange things. And there was another one involving a bookshop um, where... There were two two people actually walked in and had a conversation within the time slip and were both confused by the fact that the store had changed. Um, and then obviously they both came back from that time slip. But there's, yeah, there's so many stories associated with that one. And there's also loads of theories about why it's such a hotspot. Um, you know, everything from ley lines to geological factors like the rocks and you know amplifying different energies and so on and so on so that seems like the best bet if you want to get into a time slip is probably to go to bold street in liverpool because they seem to have the highest <laughs> incidences of anywhere that i've actually heard of um i could be wrong there might be somewhere better but from from all the cases i've read the most of them seem to kind of converge on that one place which is really, really interesting because you think, is it, people have got it into their head, so they're all imagining things on that particular street, um, or is there something weird about it? Who knows? Yeah, I mean, the, the whole idea of flaps when it comes to anything anything supernatural, including most famously like UFOs and stuff, but, you know, when, when one happens and the paper is talking about it, then others start to show up and... and you know, you can look at it from a, a folkloric point of view and say that, well, this is how stories spread. Or you can look at it from a, a more nuts and bolts point of view and say, well, maybe these things are coming in groups or maybe, you know, for example, if you think UFOs really are spaceships, you know, it makes sense that they would travel together. Or if you're looking at a more uh, psychical explanation, you would say, well, this is a place where, you know, the veil is thin or this is a window area or, you know, it makes sense that they would be clustered in some way and is yeah of course there's all these ideas about maybe there's something in the in the earth or in the ground or maybe there's something about the geology that is is changing the energy of the place which is yeah i, I it shows up all the time in, in the literature shall we say yeah there's also in um in some of the reading i did in uh sort of quantum physics around the theory of time slips there is also they make the point about certain areas it being more likely to happen um now it's quite it's quite dense stuff um but i did find it very interesting um and i can't i'll just see if i can find that point there's quite a lot of it <laughs> but essentially um yeah this this was how they broke it down that a specific location emits electromagnetic energy uh, PS1 and information energy while traveling forward in space very rarely and randomly a quantum fluctuation in a specific region of deep outer space where the vacuum permittivity and permeability are lower causes the energy to be tachyonic for the duration of the fluctuation so then the tachyonic energy of 
and I'm probably saying that wrong to you, energy of time B entangles with the energy of pastime A in the location of emission and also with the new bradion, bradionic energy of time B and that this can, could theoretically produce a time slip or time soliton. Um, and then you have a quantum mixed state described by a reduced density matrix. Um, so that was how... And that's very much broken down into lay people's terms. I had to do an awful lot of Googling of very long words to kind of um, break it down into points. But that was uh, the theory. Now, the name of the paper, uh, the name of this paper is um, Time Slips or Time Solitons, Entanglement in Time and Suppression of Decoherence in Quantum Macro States new physical and mathematical proofs. Um, the reference, if anyone wants to look that up, is Alberto Miatello, uh, January the 30th, 2018. Fantastic, Will. Uh, if you send me on the, the paper, Faye, I'll put that in the in the notes. Oh, uh, and uh, folks listening can can take a look themselves. I, I'd love to know what, what you think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, it is very interesting stuff. And he makes the point that a lot of the strange characteristics that people report of time slips um, do actually mesh up with uh, what would be happening on a quantum physics level. Um, so things like, uh, right, the fact that they can interact with the time slip reality relatively normally but cannot bring anything with them. Um, the sense of... Uh, depression of the air, of uneasiness and photoelectrical failure um, are apparently typical of strong EM fields, um, which would be um, completely consistent with the rules that they've come up with. Um, and they boil down time slips as having the following characteristics. And I... I find this quite interesting. One or more people visit the location often for the first time. Um, so I don't know if how that sort of plays into things because you think, well, that that could also back up the concept that they're just lost. <laughs> you know, it has to be somewhere you've never been before. Um, for minutes or up to hours, the location is strange. People are wearing outdated clothing. The landscape changes. The light alters. And often there's fog and oppressive immobility. Um, and the obviously the attempt to revisit the location has to result in failure because the place has vanished or is utterly changed beyond what could have happened in hours or days. Um, so apparently to qualify as a time slip, you have to have those conditions in place. I have chosen one and it's probably the best known. So I'm going to go into it in a bit of depth, hopefully. Um, I suspect that this one is the classic example and I don't know how the dates line up for you but this is something that supposedly happened in 1901 but the main book that was published about it is published in 1911 and it's a big smash it's a big sensation and I wonder like what is the commonality of or what's the number of cases or examples that happened before the publication of this book and after I have a feeling this was influential I have a feeling that most of the time slip cases I've read about are sort of early to mid 20th century and not a whole lot earlier. But that doesn't really tell you a whole lot because uh, like before 1911, you're getting into Victorian period and the Victorians believed in a lot of weird stuff. So it doesn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily prove a whole lot, but it's interesting. So 
This is, of course, the famous Versailles case. The 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 yeah the Versailles case. The the book about this was just called An Adventure. That's how I always remembered it. My initial source for this is a book called Arthur C. Clarke's Chronicles of the Strange and Mysterious. If you're old enough, you might remember the show Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. It used to scare the hell out of me when I was little with the crystal skulls and stuff. Um, but uh, this book seems to be some kind of companion volume to one of those one of those series of the show. So it, it's surprisingly skeptical, actually, this book. It's written by John Fairley and Simon Welfare. Uh, John Fairley, at least I know, was a producer on the show. But Arthur C. Clarke himself does pipe in occasionally to say things like, well, old chaps, that was a good story, but it's obviously bunkum because... And then he, like, killjoys <laughs> all over the story. But but it's, it's pretty good for what it is. It's from the early 80s. So um, he says... Oh, I'll just get my book. The most celebrated phantom scenery mystery of all unfolded one August afternoon in 1901 when two English spinsters on holiday in France took a stroll through the gardens of the Palace of Versailles, home of the French kings in the 17th and 18th, 18th centuries, and walked, so they believed, into the past. Both were utterly, utterly respectable, successful in their careers, and not apparently given to fantasy. Charlotte Annie Moberly was principal of an Oxford college, Eleanor Jordan, uh, the headmistress of a girls' school near London. On the afternoon in question, 10th of August 1901, the women were trying to reach the Petit Trianon, one of the most attractive of all the buildings dotted throughout the Great Park of Versailles. The map in their guidebook, however, was not clear, and they picked their way tentatively along the winding path and through the trees. Here we have, their, yeah, they're in a new location for the first time, ticking the box, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, uh, according to their account, strange things happened as they walked. The people they came across seemed to be wearing 18th century clothes. First, there was a woman shaking a white cloth out the window of the building, then a couple of very dignified officials dressed in long, greyish-green coats with small, three-cornered hats. Next, they noticed a woman and a girl standing in the doorway of a nearby cottage, and they too were dressed in the style of a bygone era. Both wore white kerchiefs tucked into the bodice, and the girl's dress was down to her ankles. On her head, she sported a close white cap. On they wandered uh, to their most sinister encounter, on the steps of a kind of round summer house sat a man wearing a cloak and a large shady hat. He slowly turned his face, which was marked by smallpox. His complexion was very dark. The expression was evil and yet unseeing. Suddenly they heard the sound of someone running and a young man appeared as if from nowhere, shouting that they were going in the wrong direction. He wore a dark cloak wrapped across him like a scarf and quaint buckled shoes. At last they reached the Petit Trianon, uh, that's like a it's it's a, a smaller palace or chateau within within the complex at Versailles, I believe. When Miss Moberly, but not Miss Jordan, noticed a woman apparently sketching. Again, she seemed to be dressed in 18th century style. Finally, the woman met a young man who directed them to the entrance. They both recalled that he had come out of a nearby building, slamming the door behind him. Had the two English tourists glimpsed scenes from the past? When they compared notes, no other answer seemed possible, for what other explanation could there be for their encounters with people dressed in the 18th century clothes? Do you think that the Petit Trianon is haunted? asked Miss Moberly. Yes, I do, replied Miss Jordan. And that's that's the story of the Versailles encounter. 
Love it. Now, have you have you come across that one before? Um, I have indeed, yes. Um, I find it very interesting because apparently the two of them um, did quite extensively try and debunk their own experience before finally writing the account down. Um, they considered the fact that they could have stumbled into a reenactment or some kind of special event um like an eccentric dress-up party there was some guy that was known for hosting things like that so they checked out whether or not that was a possibility and they also wrote their accounts down separately so they wouldn't be influenced by each other and then compared notes afterwards um and i also came across something saying that they marked out the bridge that they'd walked across on a map separately and then checked it and found that that they had the location right but obviously that bridge is no longer there um so I saw it, I don't know it's a very interesting case because it does sort of seem like they tried to take a skeptical approach to what happened and explain it themselves um which is always an interesting thing um I don't I still don't know because yeah there's so many different ways of looking at it I mean it was obviously an emotionally charged time potentially I know the Petit Trianon was sort of Marie Antoinette's hideout where she felt safe and she hosted parties and things like that so you know possibly a place that could be haunted or could have a lot of energy attached to it um so it's debatable I suppose whether or not it's a time slip or whether or not they're just sort of seeing something overlaid over their own reality um but then there's obviously quite a lot of elements to that story it's not as simple as you know a a figure glided past and a door closed on its own as you know it's a bit more complex um but i think it's a fantastic story um and i mean if you're going to fall through a time slip what better time to do it uh for sai <laughs> you know like amazing amazing i would take that i'll just add a few small details that i i was i thought were in that reading but they weren't they they came to the conclusion that the woman sketching was marie antoinette herself uh, and they they did report a sort of a malaise, a sort of a, a heavy, negative, sort of depressive feeling as they walked across the garden, which I think was one of your yes. key points to, to recognize. A, all of that, well, all, I, I agree with everything you said about um, their own attempts to sort of understand what happened. Just to be devil's advocate, I'll mention a few extra things. So they apparently getting the timeline straight in my head has been difficult i've had to check multiple resources against each other but it appears that they didn't necessarily notice a whole lot that was strange or at least mention it to each other on the day so a week later they started talking about it i think they both probably had picked up on something odd but not expressed it in words so the the, the conversation of do you think the petty tree now is haunted yes i do didn't happen for about another week and they didn't speak about it again for about three months after they got back to England. And they wrote accounts separately in about 1901 or 1902. They sent those to the SPR, the Society for Psychical Research, which would have been the, the, the premier um, sort of investigation unit for strange, <laughs> for strange things in England at this time. And, and they weren't tremendously impressed. They, they didn't really want to take it any further. And then 10 years later, they write their book. And again, now the, the SPR take an interest again when, when the book is written. And so I'll read a little bit I got here from a... This appears to be... Um, I, th I think it's a PhD 
write up. It's called Enchanted Modernity. It's by Laura Schwartz uh, from the University of Warwick. She says, An adventure, and that's the name of their book, was reviewed widely, and its publishers, Macmillan, sent a copy to the SPR. The SPR was founded in 1882 by the physicist William Bar- Barrett, the, the spiritualist uh, Edmund Dawson Rogers, and professor of moral philosophy at the University of Cambridge, Henry Sidgwick. Just to give you an idea of how mainstream this stuff really was at, in Victorian times, you know, all the great and the good, high, high-end scientists and respected scientists were, were interested in this stuff. It aimed to provide an intellectually respectable forum in which supernatural occurrences would be considered. Um, so basically the two ladies meet with a secretary of the SPR, Alice Johnson. Uh, this was back in 1901. She wasn't interested. But when they get the book in 1911, they the journal, sorry, the society publishes a journal and they have a polite but decisive review of an adventure which maintained that their research had obviously led Moberly and Jordan to unconsciously embellish their tale while the scenes they witnessed that day at Versailles were not in themselves enough to suggest anything out of the ordinary. Adamant that they really had entered into the mind of Marie Antoinette, the two put together a long list of statements from people, many of them well-known churchmen and academics. It's interesting, it's good to point out that these women were not sort of chastised because of this story. Um, a lot of people gave them grief, in the obviously in the sceptical papers, but... It like this was not seen as out there. They, they were they were women who were heavily involved in the Church of England and in, you know, the the high end educational facilities of, of England, and this didn't. I, I think if you had this today, this would be a problem for your career, either in church or in education. But back then, it really wasn't. It, you know, a lot of scientists didn't like this story and wrote scathing takes on it, but it didn't affect them negatively in their career, as far as I know. So they, they got a list of all these well-known churchmen and academics who affirmed that the story they had been told in 1901 remained unchanged since they did all that research in between. They did go, both of them went back to um, Versailles several times over the years. I have read in other places that the people who are sceptical about this tend to point out that actually their story did change over the years and they sort of ginned up some of the details. And and for me, that's the, the main problem is that um, the amount of time that passed between when it happened and when they first spoke about it and then from there until the publication of the book seems like a lot of time for them to either sort of confabulate details or kind of get their story straight as it were. However, it's worth pointing out, just to be devil's advocate again, they stuck to their story for their whole life and most people who've investigated this uh, in detail have come to the conclusion that there was no conspiracy. They weren't trying to fool anyone and they themselves were really believed that something strange had happened to them on that day. Yeah, it's... it's so I don't know if you ever thought about it's that. It's just really <laughs> interesting what you were saying about um, this story not affecting their reputations because my first thought of them not sort of saying more about it at the time would have been um, that perhaps both of them were afraid of the other one thinking that they were foolish so they sort of didn't really want to say what they'd seen and it took a week for them to kind of sit with it and have it settle in and think oh no I do need to talk about this like it needs to be addressed but I suppose if there was absolutely no stigma around having those kind of experiences then that makes less sense um yeah the word stigma is is important here isn't it and 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 the more I mean I read a lot about the Victorian period and I 
I go back and forth. I mean, I, I tend to say it was a time when believing this stuff was common and, and people who were, you know, high up in society were, were doing it. But sometimes that was open and sometimes it was more private. And some people did. Like, I read some stuff that makes it seem like this was quite mainstream. And I read other stuff that makes it seem like, well, these people did get pilloried. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if, yeah, actually, it was a little more difficult to come out with it. And it took them a while to decide that that's what they wanted to do. I don't think it was completely okay for people to to freely say that they've had these experiences. I think they might have been a little more accepting than if it happened today. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Yeah, I would also love to know what the gap was between the experience and them writing it down individually and then also discussing it because you know if, if obviously if something happens to you you write the account immediately you've still got that account say 10 years later so if you come out 10 years later with the same account that you wrote down just afterwards then that's fine but obviously if you sit with it 10 years and the experience changes in your memory and then you write it down it's it's a different kettle of fish so I'm quite sort of interested yeah. in that side of it as well and those details I don't know myself and I am spending a little bit of time on this story, but I do think this, because the book was so popular and it was in print until the 1950s and the story was very well known in sort of paranormal circles. And I, I think it was incredibly influential and I think it probably set the template for what we now understand as a time slip story. I'm going to have one more quote. This is from, so we mentioned that the SPR gave them short shrift at the time, but my next quote is from the SBR because they still exist. <laughs> and um, in 2017, a book was published called The Mysterious Pass of Versailles, an investigation of a psychic journey back in time. The book is by Mark Lamont. Uh, I don't have it, but I do have a review of the book from the SBR. And this review is by Tom Ruffles. And they're a little bit more thoughtful about it here. So in one paragraph, Ruffles says about the book written by Lamont, he says... Lamont mentions the occasional lazy dismissal of an adventure as a hoax, and he shows that whatever the explanation, the ladies did not decide to cook up a plot to fool readers. To begin with, they did not know each other well at that stage, rendering a conspiracy less likely, and if monetary gain, an uncertain prospect, had been the motive, why wait a decade before publication? More plausibly, when Eleanor Sidgwick reviewed an adventure in the Journal of the Society for Psychical Research, she attributed the experience to a combination of the heat, fatigue, and a feeling of oppression leading to a sensation that the atmosphere was uncanny, added to which the delayed writing of the accounts allowed scope for the natural unreliability of memory. As a result, in her view, the supernormal claims were not sufficient to warrant examination. Moberly and Jordan, undoubtedly feeling bruised by their contact with the SBR, annotated their copy of the review quote not worth answering so i just i just like that he says you know it's a bit pat it's a bit simple to say it's a hoax it's it he he, he gives them enough benefit of the doubt to say well i think they believe what they're saying yeah it's which it's is, definitely interesting that they didn't know each other very well because that sort of would make it a little bit harder, you know, if you've just met someone to say, oh, I think we've just slipped back in time. You know, it's it's going to be harder to say that to a stranger than to your best friend. Um, and obviously it does seem less likely they'd cook up a hoax together. Um, I don't know who exactly it was, but I think someone at the time 
um, accused them apparently of having a shared delusion. But again, I think if you know somebody less well, you're less likely to be on the kind of wavelength where you'd hallucinate the same thing. Um, so that is a very interesting point that I did not know. I just assumed they were close friends because they were traveling together. I think they were about to work together. One of them had vouched for the other in a new position at one of their schools. And I think the trip was partly to sort of solidify their relationship and see if they would get along. So it was probably a very fraught time for both of them. You know, they they might have felt there's a lot riding on how they get along, yeah. <laughs> you know, career wise. Oh, yeah. One one point, actually, that I find quite interesting is in terms of the characteristics of time slips is that during the time slip neither times are past or present because all occupants perceive themselves as belonging to their time and also as being alive which Hmm. i find interesting it's sort of like the because i think when we read these stories it's the people experiencing the time slip that we sort of see as present but i suppose the people who see them are just as present if it's two times mixed together if you could get a story that matched with a historical ghost story of seeing two people in strange costumes, yeah. you know, that dated to the 1700s. That's, is that too much to ask? Yeah, it's really, <laughs> is that too neat? really interesting, actually, because there's a story that we've just covered for our uh, London tourist attractions episode um, in Tower of London, where somebody reported... Well, initially he reported a ghost sighting, but in his account, he said he wasn't sure if they slipped forward in time or he slipped back because the two men that he saw stared at him as much as he stared at them. And this is something that happened in the 80s, but the men that he saw were dressed in medieval clothing. So that was an in- that's an interesting one because I'm not sure if that classifies as a time slip or a haunting. Right. We'll wrap it up with that, Faye. Uh, where can people find your work and your show online? Yeah, so we are on YouTube under the Ghost Trail series. And we're also on Instagram under the Ghost Trail series. So if you check us out on there and you can find all of our episodes uh, on YouTube and subscribe and you'll find out every time we've got a new video. Thank you so much for coming on the show once again, Faye. It's always a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been really interesting. I've really enjoyed this episode. So I love, I love a good time slip. And I love all kinds of ghost stories. So if you have any ideas for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. If anything strange has ever happened to you, we would love to hear that too. As we always say, uh, we want to believe you, but the evidence has to be good. So send us in whatever you've got. You can find us on uh, Twitter, where we are at Strange Ireland. You can find us on Instagram, where we are White Atlantic Weird Podcast. We have a Facebook, but we don't use it that much, so it get, doesn't get checked as often as it should. But by all means, if that's how you want to play, go find us there. So we, uh, you know, we we leave it there. So thank you very much for listening, and as we always say, stay safe. And yeah, thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You can prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.